Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Don't Call Me Buddy. I'm joined with my always passionate co-host, Nick. And today, well, today we're going to talk about food, specifically the, the UN's recent resolution on the right to food. But I do have to say, you know, I was passionate about coming into this episode to follow up our first episode this year about democracy, talking about China's white paper. But, you know, Nick, Nick sends me this graphic one day. It's a picture of the globe. It's got all sorts of colors on it. I can't make heads or tails of it. And he's passionate as hell. He's spewing all sorts of facts at me. Uh, getting into what is food, what is the right to food, and the big critique that Nick had, or the point that you know, I guess it had been blowing up across. Social You're gonna media. not gonna let me say it myself here. You're not no, no, you're no, just I'm gonna, gonna put I'm words gonna, into my mouth. I'm gonna speak for you. Much because- like the big bad man taking food away from the starving and suffering, you're going to just speak my points for me and assume well- you know best. I would like to think that I do. But is that what this is about? It's about one. Is it about the UN knowing what's best for the rest of the world? What does this mean? What is this resolution? It's about one graphic that went around social media and everyone looks at it and it says the right to food and the United States and Israel are the only two countries to vote no on this resolution, right? Everyone looks at that and says, oh my God, the United States, what a terrible country. I can't believe we did that. These garbage people. And it's like, really? Are you serious? The United States is the biggest foreign aid donor of food in the world, period, full stop, has been for 50 years, has been since the 40s, when frankly, we had so much excess food, we didn't know what to do with it. So we just gave it away for free. Yeah, but but, but why vote no? You know, what's the point of voting no on this? Well, I mean, we we did have some points, but honestly, I, I think part of it is being petty. Part of it is saying, oh, there are these other treaties and you know things that we don't want to give away our sovereignty. We don't want to have an obligation to anyone. We're doing this of our own goodwill. And also, there are other treaties going on in the background that kind of say, you know, where you lend assistance, where you don't. Well, is that what a resolution is? Is it an obligation? Like I, I came into this whole this whole conversation with you, not even really being familiar with how the UN structures these resolutions, what they mean. Is it, it's not obviously a binding law. Well, so certain parts of these agreements, for example, like the international covenant on, you know, social, cultural, political rights, et cetera, that was passed in the sixties that, um, old Jimmy boy Carter, uh, (laughs) signed onto. And then of course, Congress doesn't ratify it. So doesn't really matter because we never actually enacted it into law. I mean, the United States has been part of these things. And you're right. A resolution is not like a binding agreement. It's not like we we are forced to do something. It's I mean, more it's like of an, an opinion. opinion. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, you're, you're moonlighting a little. It's a white paper. It's like, hey, we think this thing is good. And in a sense, for the United States, it's like if you're already leading the world in this stuff and all these countries end up signing up and saying you should do more, are you really going to sign on to it? I don't think you would. Well, why not? I mean, at that point, it seems if we're already contributing so much food to countries around the world, isn't it simple just to vote yes in solidarity to show that, hey, yeah, we recognize the right to food, whatever that means, and we're standing by the UN and well, that's majority of the other countries around when, the world. When you say whatever that means, I mean, that's one of the United States' point. If you go in the meeting minutes and the notes, the US representative you know, a couple months back was like, hey, we don't recognize that there's an international definition for this stuff. Therefore, since it's not an international law and well understood for this term, the right to food, we're going to vote no. And, and there are other reasons, of course, because there's pesticides manufacturing companies, but you have those in Europe too. 
And Europe does donate a lot of food as well, Germany, France, the UK, and they all signed on to this. So honestly, I think the United States, I think we're being a little petty here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're really we're really voting no because like, ah, the definition, you know, it's not really defined. You know, they're getting into the mnemonics. It's, you know, this not everything is clearly articulated. So why would we agree to this? I mean, well, it's, it, in a sense, it's absurd. Part of it, it is articulated, though, though, because I, it's not like this came out of the blue. We've been talking about a right to food since the end of World War II and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 1948, you know, said that everyone has access to or, or has the right to a standard of living for their health, well-being, which includes food, housing, medical care, and other things. So food was one of the top of the list priorities in terms of fundamental human rights. All right, well... And we acknowledge that. So again, it's like, why not go the extra mile? And it does come well, down to those petty petty points. And you could say, oh, man, United States just representing agribusiness. And I mean, we're getting a little squirrely because there's stuff in there uh, about this resolution about technology transfer. And it's like, should you be obligated to then share your intellectual property and your technologies with other countries around the world? It's like, well, we, we kind of already have programs to do that anyway. So... I guess I do agree with you. I don't see the point for us voting no, but well, well, let's let's just take a step back and I think let's just ground ourselves in what does it even mean the right to food and and I'll quote here from the UN Human Rights Office of the High Commissioner that the right to adequate food is realized when every man, woman, and child alone or in community with others has physical and economic access at all times to adequate food or means for its procurement. When you look at that from a human rights lens, it's like, obviously, like, duh, why would I not support this? So again, it's sort of to the, against the United States, it's, this is such a, you know, it, it's just such a good natured statement. You know, why would I not support the right to adequate food to everyone in the world? I mean, I'll admit in my criticism really with this, you know, looking through this resolution, my whole thing is the right to food touches on so many different dimensions, you know, the economy, society, po- politics, cultural norms. So how do you really defend or enact some sort of legislation that could protect the right of food for everyone? And to that point, if that's where the United States is coming from, I can get behind that because it's like, let's solve every single problem in the world. Poverty, hunger, war, displacement. Gender inequality. And, yeah, gender inequality. And from there... Once we've solved those, then we will be able to protect the right to food. And that's like an insurmountable, an insurmountable task because we clearly haven't been able to do it for the last 70 plus years. But Steve, this is aspirational. It's an opinion piece. It's a white paper. It's a resolution. Therefore, like, shouldn't we be aiming for the ideal as opposed to just being okay with, you know, some mediocre resolution that says, oh, we might do this. We could do this part. But no, they're coming out. They're saying everyone should have the right to food. And I think that's what how they should frame the resolution. And I think that is aspirational and something that should be lauded, applauded, and pursued. I uh, I do agree with you there. It's aspirational. So again, why would the United States vote no? Are we not a country built on aspiration? Well, aspiration for ourselves, I guess. <laughs> for other people. But no, I mean, look, the United States... I'm, I guess I'm just going to play defense this episode, right? So the U.S. was one of the founding members of the Food Assistance Convention, established in 1967, 
to provide food service to countries in needs. We also signed on to the Charter of American States in 1948. Article 34 of that agreement talks about nutrition, increased food production, and social equity. Actually, there's so much equality stuff in there. I'm surprised we signed on that early. Um, but I, all that is to say, like the United States has been involved in this stuff. If you look at like what are the current big trends, like for example, the Biden administration, they announced some sort of five, it, it was either a five or $10 billion you know, new program that they're doing. And we're working with countries like Vietnam, Israel, who also voted no as part of this coalition. Um, there's, I, I think, somewhere between 15 and 20 countries where we all came together and said, yes, we're going to have a very big food program to solve world hunger, or at least to make a dent in it, and a sizable dent and a sustainable you know, final dent in it. Um, and of course, th- that has been complicated with COVID and all the challenges there. But I think the United States, despite voting no on this, like my main point is, sure, you can, you know, take a dump on the US on social media. That's fine. You see a graphic, you're like, why would we vote against this? But when you look at the actual facts, when you look at the funding, when you look at all the activity going on, the United States is doing more than any other country on the planet for food security to fight against hunger. And to just hand wave it away because we voted no on one resolution, I think is being ridiculous. Yeah. And no, I'll give you credit there. I mean, one of the ironic bits of this resolution is that Guatemala signed on, of course, to recognize the right to food. I mean, it's a country that's been plagued with food insecurity, poverty, hunger, and they. Well, they actually, oh, Steve! Oh, Steve! Well, that one, I I don't want to get too much there, but you know, we're thinking, we're talking about the United States. I am defending them, but you think about the Monroe Doctrine. You think about you know Reagan getting involved. You think about everyone. <laughs> you know, that's literally like one of the poster childs of U.S. imperialism in the Caribbean. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, I guess then maybe this isn't in the United States defense, but, you know, I mean, recently within the last decade, I, I can't remember the exact year, but Guatemala actually enact or added, amended to their constitution the right to food, which is no surprise why they would then go ahead and vote in favor of this resolution. But I guess one of the ironic bits that I found about this is just the the massive food insecurity within Guatemala. I mean, sure, it stems from poverty maybe climate change, but I'll just generally say weather-related trends. But a lot of it seems to actually come from the role of agriculture there. And, and it's really, you know, this sense of, you know, global agriculture where so much of the food that is grown within Guatemala takes a negative effect on the environment, displaces people, and then is actually exported out of the country. So I find it ironic in a sense that Guatemala is signing on to this. They've in, they've amended their constitution to include food security. Yet, a lot of the points that the UN calls out saying, you know, you need to adhere to these economic, these political, these social dimensions of the of the resolution to uphold food security, they're blatantly disregarding by sending food out of the country, by playing to the corporations, playing to the men with the big bucks. So in defense of the United States, I can see why they would vote no, because at the same time, when you see an example like Guatemala, it's like, well, what does this really mean? You know, both sides of the aisle here are sort of voting in a way that would show that they're, I, I'm not going to say not serious, but it's almost like a joke. I, I think the United States is going to come around and vote yes on it in the future. I really do. And here's why. You look at what's going on at the state level, and you have states like Maine who recently recognize you know, the right to food and have actually amended their state constitution to include parts uh, on that right. And so that just happened two months ago. And so that's, that's very new. That's very recent. And I think the momentum is, is probably there, especially as you see like what you were talking about with all the corporate farming 
And the fact that, you know, we love to put up the fact that, oh, we support small, small families and small farmers in this country. And I think that's part of it because now you're dealing with a situation in which these big companies control most of the world's seeds, control most of the, um, not the fertilizers, but most of the pesticides that you actually end up using on these farms. And I have some statistics on that later to ram down your throat. But I'm surprised, you know, I'm really surprised you got at Guatemala. What about Zimbabwe? I'm going to play. They signed on. I'm going to play. Well, (laughs) understandably, man. I mean, I. uh, All right. Let me tell you about Zimbabwe. Okay. I didn't mean this as a gotcha. So No, no, it's no gotcha. Uh, this uh, lady, Smita Narula, published an article titled The Rights of Food, Holding Global Actors Accountable Under International Law. She published it in 2006. And one of the case studies she uses is Zimbabwe in the early 2000s, where the government refused to accept international food assistance during a shortage. And then the government's grain marketing board, which had a monopoly on buying and distributing grain, denied access to people supporting the opposing political party. Therefore, food as a political weapon against right. your dissidents, against people supporting the other side. And I, that that wasn't the sole point of, of her article. She also blamed international financial actors, such as the IMF and World Bank, where, you know, during the 80s and 90s, their structural adjustment programs, you know, countries were punished more for violating those financial terms and agreements than opposing or not opposing, but for violating any sort of UN resolution or UN right that sure. they had signed on to. And They're so the ones like, signing is, the checks. It makes sense. I, I'm curious, Steve, like what are your thoughts on, I guess, the, the duality there where it's one, it's blame the big international monetary um, actors versus like what, what's the level of responsibility that you have as a local government where you would have corruption in the case of Zimbabwe literally preventing food from getting to people based on their political affiliation versus blaming it on, you know, an international financial actor. Yeah. Which one do you feel like is more of a problem? I think, I think the financial actor, I mean, it's funny that you bring up the, the, the political side to this, because that is one of the points within the resolution that you cannot withhold food from opposing political parties. Um, So interesting. I'm sure that that example is why they included that, one of many, one of many examples, I'm sure, why they include that in here. But you know, it, in a, I'll say, developing country. I don't think that's the right term anymore. But you know, a country that's reliant on economic funds from something like you know the World Bank, I can understand that. You know, you're sort of with beholden to, up, you know, up, upholding your side of the of the deal in order to get those funds. It's a country like Zimbabwe. You certainly need the money. The human rights side of that, the the political side. You know, that I don't condone that. I mean, that's something that and I guess that's really what this resolution sorts to get at. I mean, it's kind of taking a look and saying, let's just set the the stage for human rights. You know, let's assume, you know, let's call out really the litany of of human rights abuses that we know go on the world, you know, whether it's economic abuse, societal abuse, cultural, you know, abuse just due to norms. Um so it's always difficult because at the end of the day, as a country, you're tr- if, if especially if you're in need of funds, you're going to look to organizations like the World Bank for money, and you know, how, whatever the terms of their conditions are, you're going to accept and maybe put that put a little bit more weight on that over upholding human rights for your citizens. Now, whether that's right or not, you know, I guess I think we could say no, but it's a tough spot to be in. I'm not condoning by any means them withholding grain. I mean, I feel like there's certainly other ways that they could have gone about that. 
Yeah, I, that's fair. And it is important to note that the IMF charter, for example, actually stops it from considering domestic politics when it's making a loan decision. It's uh, If you look at the Articles of Agreement of how it was founded, it's Schedule C on par values. Not um, bad. But no, I mean, look, same thing with the World Bank that you cited. When the Rwandan genocide was going on in 1994, the World Bank put out a report where they had a brief section at the start that's like, oh man, there are these horrific massacres taking place. And then they go on to mention milk toast development recommendations. <laughs> so it's like, really, guys? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like... Again, there's no real teeth in the international... Like, the International Criminal Court is a total joke. Um, the United Nations, and I guess that that could be another episode. Oh, my goodness. But, like, what is the United Nations going to end up doing if, you know, all these parties sign on to a resolution? It's really just naming and shaming and saying, oh, look, you signed on to this thing, and you didn't uphold your end of the bargain. Therefore, the rest of the international community is going to give you crap. But I guess my beef is, how does that really solve anything? Like, like look at the United States. People are giving the United States shit now because we didn't vote for this. Is that going to change how much food we provide to other countries around the world? No. We're still not really. Yeah, exactly. But so I get the shaming, but this and like it's I ammunition, for example, if someone for example, there is a lot of food insecurity in the United States. We have the SNAP program for that reason, the supplemental nutritional assistance program. That's why that exists. And I think by not by voting no on something like this, you're sort of signaling and the rest of the world can use this to say, oh, man, like, no wonder people are hungry in the United States. You don't even seem to care about voting yes on the right to food. I mean, that's... <sighs> tell me I'm wrong, Steve. Tell me I'm an idiot, okay? No, I'm not going to tell you an idiot, but I I don't know, man. I just feel like this thing is so stupid. I mean, to really uphold the right to food, you know, you need to solve all these other problems. And like putting out and saying, yes, we recognize this as, as, as a fundamental human right. It's like, great. Thank you for recognizing that. that. Like, that's a no-brainer, the right to food. So it's like, what, what is this really going to do? How is this going to help countries who want to truly, who maybe struggle with it today to uphold the, how, how is it going to give them the framework to start driving the policy at the domestic level to begin to uphold this? Well, it does give a framework. That's what you're signing on to. You're signing on to an aspirational framework. And the idea is that you're going to take it back to your, to your home country, to your legislative body, and they're going to pass a law regarding it. So that's what the delegates did from the United Kingdom, for example. That's what others have done. And they all signed on to it. And meanwhile, they do have these big corporations. They do have these big chemical manufacturing companies. Well, here, and, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw you a bit of a curveball. Only two countries on that graphic voted no. I'm assuming then in the category that voted yes, Afghanistan was one of them. In the UN resolution, they call out the fact that every human, whether you're a woman child, regardless of cultural, religious norms, needs to have the right to food. Anyone who's paid attention to the news within the last 20 years can understand that women in certain Islamic countries play more of a domestic role. They don't have access to the vocational, the educational training to provide themselves with the means of procuring work and therefore being able to purchase and procure food. So Again, it's like the irony there because what does it really mean if you're in like is are, are they really going to go ahead and address something like that? All right, so you're literally picking like the worst case example <laughs> where the Taliban for example <laughs> literally went up and said, "Hey, if you're a widowed woman, 
you know, if someone who's uh, fighting on the other side, you know, you're not getting our food. <laughs> you're not getting anything. So, and, and they actually explicitly, when they came to power in the early 2000s, they were like, oh, all these uh, women and girls going to school? I don't think so. You shouldn't be right. allowed to do that. And so, yeah, of course, when you put it that way, I mean, that does seem like a big issue. But that's not the only thing with food insecurity. It can happen even in, you know, what we'd like to think of as pretty sophisticated. No, I I, uh, I get that. But it's really coming back to like, you know, all the, the shit that's being thrown in the United States. And it's like, well, let's look at some of the people who signed yes to this. And let's look at their track records. And let's look at what they've proposed to do. And it's really not there. So Someone, the, of course, would say on Afghanistan, the United States is the primary reason why that's happening. However, of course, you can then point to that and say, they were stopping people from going to schools before the United States ever got involved. So that's not much of a point. But still, they would say that in terms of food insecurity today, the United sure. States is the primary culprit. I can understand that. Now, I'm not meaning to derail that. I mean, we could do a whole thing on on Afghanistan and, and, and all that over there. Not that we're let me, <laughs> qualified to do so. Let me say it about India then, because it's not, all right, in, in defense of, okay, because, oh my goodness, it's only the big West, uh, the Western powers responsible for all of the ill in the world. Everything bad attributable to them. Really, is that the reason why Hindu settlers in, in India pushed out the indigenous Adivasi population into degraded forests, eroded hill slopes, scrubland, rocky soil, and it just completely displaced them? Where even now today, you can look it up and be like, oh no, that wasn't hundreds of years ago. That is literally the last year where people are being forced out of their homes and millions of indigenous people in northern India are being forced to migrate. And it's like, do we have any, like, do we have any ties to that? No, this is just something that ends up happening to, to your point. Like India signed on to this. They signed on to the right to food and all the rest of it. And that right to food is, is part of and is in addition to that initial covenant on social, cultural, and political rights that, of course, talk about women and indigenous communities. And so if you have that basis and then say, oh, yeah, actually, we're going to disregard the, the basic documents that that's built on top of. We're going to displace indigenous communities. I mean, that's what's going on in Brazil. That's what's going on in India. Right. That's what's going on in all these where other countries the shame, who signed on to this. Where is so the shame? The, where is the shame? I mean, maybe that's, you know, maybe there needs to be a new international body that just goes around and shames these countries around the world. Funnily they enough, go to the there, capital. <laughs> there actually is a guy in the United Nations whose sole thing is like, he's, he's like the delegate, delegate or representative or whatever, where he goes to these things and he literally writes up on behalf of the UN, what a bad job the United Nations is doing <laughs> at these meetings. It's pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, you've got to keep, you've got to keep the UN in check. I mean... All right. You know, I guess to somewhere. So I think what we said so far is, you know, this isn't really going to solve anything. It's an acknowledgement of fundamental human rights. We've thrown out examples of people who do support it, those who don't, Afghanistan, India. So it's like, what does this mean? Like, what's the next step, Nick? You know, you got very passionate about this. How do you see this playing out? Is this something that's going to be revisited within the next year? I mean, is there a follow-up? How do these types of resolutions typically because I know this hasn't been the first conversation around food security. Oh, yeah. We voted no on this right for multiple years, <laughs> multiple oh, sessions. Great. The United States is like, no, we don't agree with this. And I think the initial one passed, you know, just uh, either 15 to 20 years ago. So this has been an ongoing thing. And it's not like the second, you know, countries ratify this. It's all of a sudden dropped. It's, these things are built on in the future. Um, that's how we started with the UN Declaration of Human Rights in 48. And then we went on to 
all these other declarations, like the one that the right to food is built on, which was, you know, more recent, but that international covenant on uh, social, political, cultural rights, um, that was in 67. And so, I don't know, it's constantly building. There's going to be new disputes with this every single time. But I guess part of it was, I, I had this big question in my mind, which, you know, I want to ask you, Steve. So Actually. should a state be legally obligated to intervene and provide food to countries that are in need? Say the Taliban right now in Afghanistan. No, I don't think we should be legally obligated. Why not? Well, let's think of an example where, you know, we're not from the United States. Say you're from Brazil or Guatemala. We'll tie it back to my earlier point. Are you suggesting then that Guatemala, a country that already struggles with food security, should go ahead and support a country that maybe is in a worse state than them with additional food? Well, they wouldn't have to. That's why they signed on to this thing, because they don't expect that they have to support. It's just, oh, man, Germany. Yeah, you should give people more food. Oh, France, you should do more. You should ensure you you need to have these extraterritorial obligations, in a sense. You need to be obligated to do this. You need to be compelled to do this. And it is your responsibility. And yeah. look, that's I, I think that is fair in a sense. I think, for example, if you know, if can if the United States fell on hard times, I would hope that people in Canada would be like, hey, we'll we'll give you some extra food if we have it. But yeah, vice versa. I think, for example, the all the stuff going on in North Korea, for example, do we think that the political well I don't want to say the political prisoners there because it's all shrouded. But for example, if there's a famine in the North Korean countryside, so should the United States still provide food assistance? I think so. I think Bush was somewhat wrong to tone it down in the early 2000s. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think if you're in a position of power where you have so much food abundance, I mean, granted, we do have food, you know, there is hunger within the United States and, and all those other issues. But I agree. I mean, I feel like if you're, and it, I guess... <laughs> I guess in a sense it comes down to politics though, right? Because, you know, the United States, we're always trying to position ourselves as, you know, this great country, you know, put ourselves on the national stage. And how do we do so by, you know, supporting all these other countries, these programs, donating food, m money, et cetera. And like, I get that. And like, it's a fantastic thing that we do. There's no beef there. But on the flip side, and again, it's not like the expectation should be on the United States to solve this, but it's like putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot. It's like, okay, your country is going through this severe food shortage right now. Like, we'll send you food, sure. But at, under the surface, you know, what caused that shortage? Was it economic? Was it political? Is there a war going on? And what I guess the, what, what I really took beef with this is this whole resolution is like, we've got to solve all these other problems before we can truly protect the right to food. And it really lacked any, not that it needs to outline a plan to solving all these issues, but it didn't even like recognize that those were issues to solve. In, in a sense, it was, you know, it acknowledged that those were contributing factors, but it's like, let's dial it back a step here. Like if we're going to put out the right to food, how do we, how do we solve this? How do we truly uphold this? What roles can countries like the United States, Germany, you know, I'll, I'll just mention those two, but what, what, what can they play in helping these issues? And it's not, I'm not by any means advocating for intervention at the global stage because we've seen how that's gone over the last hundred of years. You know, it's but, funny, like, so the, the obligations around the right to food, like in, implied in there is technology transfer, it's capacity building, it's 
how do you, to your point, how do you build a longer term sustainable solution so that this food can be produced, sourced, transported, packaged, consumed, all of that done by the local economy, right? How do you support that? And the obligations of the right to food is for saying it, one country is responsible for supporting others. Um, it sounds a lot to me like the responsibility to protect, which is also known as R2P, for which the United States is criticized all the time. Like China and Russia will come in and say, oh, the United States is, you know, abusing R2P to justify regime change. And I feel like food, if you take it far enough, would be framed in the exact same way. It would be seen as an act of intervention and imperialism in a sense. Oh, 100%. I mean, if you're propping up this country, providing them food, there's clearly, I mean, clearly someone could interpret that as a, you know, political favor. You know, you're traveling, trying to get a foothold in the country to, for whatever reason. I mean, you no, 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 not, any- not, um, not in terms of that, but to say that you have an obligation, for example, right to protect is if there's a genocide going on, if there's an ethnic cleansing, if, if there's something on that level, then you as a country, as an international community, we need to get involved. You need to actually get involved in the situation and intervene in that state because they've lost their legitimate rights as a sovereign nation, right? They're no longer acting as a sovereign. You've got to get involved. And I feel like if you took this food stuff far enough, you could say, like, for example, like, Steve, let me let me ask you some hypotheticals. Like, say ask you had away. something like the Irish potato famine, where there's a production surplus, but the food is being shipped out of the country because it'll make more money, like you were saying with Guatemala. Like, should we still then you know, provide food or should we even get involved on <laughs> almost like a regime, cha- regime change basis if it's that big of a deal that people are going hungry because um, the ruling government decides it wants to ship yeah. things out of the country and even for corporations who want to ship things out because they're multinational, of course, and that's a huge, huge barrier. Yeah. I mean, I think there's two dimensions there to the first point about, you know, what can the international community, what role can they play when you have a country shipping out excess or, you know, food that should stay at home? I don't know. I mean, sanctions are the first thing to mind, you know, blacklist those goods. I mean, there should be a standard there where if we know there's a a hunger issue, a food security issue in a country, why would we willingly buy those goods? They should be blacklisted in a sense. Right. But wouldn't you think that that would actually contribute to and further exacerbate the hunger situation and food insecurity in the first place? Well, I don't know. Like you start peeling back the layers. So like, what do you mean? Like what would contribute to that then? If you're, if you're keeping the food within a country, why would that exacerbate the problem? It wouldn't be that you're keeping it within the country is that you're denying, like one of the common ways of talking about how to reduce hunger and actually achieve food sovereignty, the right to food, the rest of it, it's all framed around poverty. And so if you have a country that's rising economically, it has to develop economically because its population is exploding. It's got all of these great aspirations, trying to make life better for its people. And then suddenly you hit it with a ton of sanctions. And now even more people get plunged into food insecurity. So I just feel like it could, <laughs> I don't want to say it's a slippery slope, but I could easily see how that would turn from, you know, good intentioned moral stand easily to just backfiring and right. further hurting but, but other civilians. Sort of indirectly, you're coming at from an economic angle where the proceeds of taking that food out fuel all the positive things that that country is doing. Right. And if maybe that's the situation, then maybe that's a role that the World Bank, the IMF should take in and say, hey, we understand that there's an issue here. If you were to continue exporting food, we'll provide you a loan to provide the difference that you need to fund these programs. Interesting. Okay. 
Is that a crazy thought? Well, I wouldn't want at that level. I'm not sure we would want those international financial institutions to get involved because at that stage, if it turns out to be something like you are, because to me, the Irish potato famine and stuff like that, it's similar to how like the Soviet Union started restricting food to people in Ukraine as part of this collective political punishment. And so it's like, what do you, I don't think the IMF or the World Bank would have gotten involved in, in any case. No, but that's, well, I mean, I that's don't think a little that bit different. That's political, though. That's, that's using, withholding food to, you know, advance their political or, you know, submit people to their political party. Is that not, in a sense, similar, though, to taking food, a big corporation taking food, recognizing, hey, there's a lot of hungry, starving people in this country, but the profit incentive is much greater if we ship this overseas and then just producing all the food locally and shipping it overseas. Well, and, and you know, I have no background within what I'm going to say. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure that what I'm going to suggest is true to some extent, but I would imagine those cases, if, if a, a multinational corporation is going to come to my country, is going to set up operations because they've recognized the massive profit potential of exporting, say, corn from my country, wouldn't I, as, as a president, as a political body leading in that country, say to this corporation that, hey, you have a, you, you will allow you to be here, but you need to provide X percentage of that food needs to, or X percentage of that food needs to stay within the country or be sold at an at, you know, cost rate. Anything well, in excess of that can be shipped out, keep the profits, but we need to keep a certain percentage here to maintain our, a level of human rights. See, but Steve, that would be seen as government intervention and overreach into the free market economy for which the IMF and World Bank regularly, when they structure their debt financing for these countries, they say, you need to implement that. I mean, that was the entire um, idea behind all the structural readjustment going on in the 80s and 90s, um, where they stipulated, hey, like we, we do not think, for example, the World Bank was of the opinion that if you have a bunch of small piecemeal reforms, it's never going to go well. You need a big shock to the system, right? You need this big reform. And part of that was saying, hey, all these government subsidies, you got to get rid of them. And there have been issues with that. There have been countries and times and places where that country will actually cite, hey, we have this IMF agreement. We have this World Bank loan. And it's not letting us subsidize or give away food for free. And then, of course, the IMF will come out and say, oh, no, of course, we allow for that. Like, you have people starving. We'll help you. But they, re they really don't. It's like, hey, you owe us money. Give us the money. You need to sell the food for a price. And if you subsidize it that much, then you're essentially, you know, going back on the terms of, of this debt in the first place, of this loan. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's messed up. And so I agree. What is the real problem here? Is it just free market economics? Like I get the IMF, the World Bank, they play very positive roles in the world, but at the same time, they are driven by these agreements. They understand economic theory. They're looking to make their money back and then interest and whatever else those terms of the agreement are. Like understanding that, is it economics that's the problem? Is it the way that we've structured our market within the world? Like how do we strike that balance? I guess that's really what it all comes down to. Well, all right, the book to read on this is by William Easterly. It's called The White Man's Burden, Why the West's Efforts to Aid the Rest Have Done So Much Ill and So Little Good. That was published in 2006, so obviously there's been some changes since then. But he really does document that, hey, through these structural adjustments, um, places like Uganda and Ghana, they actually did okay. Whereas other countries like Niger and Zambia didn't do so well. 
So, and of course, also documents other issues like, oh, you know, in Malawi, you had an issue with thieves stealing farmers' cassava that they were growing. You know, that's a security issue. That's not a political, that's a security issue. That's not economic. And the same thing in villages right. in Tanzania, where they actually started forming these self-production groups to deter cattle theft. <laughs> and I I, the big thing that's on people's minds, though, is not so much the IMF and World Bank, but it's more the multinational multinational corporation, the transnational corporation, where, I mean, let's talk in the United States. I know I've spent the whole episode defending well, is that it, what but... we're really saying here? Are we really saying then that this resolution, it's not going to solve anything because of the multinational corporation, because of capitalism? Run amok. Once again, it strikes. I Look, I think it's concerning. I'm not going to say it's a 100% barrier to any progress. But when you look at the fact that four agrochemical companies control 60% of the global seed market, 75% of the global pesticide market, that's from a 2017 report by the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems, that's part of the United Nations. That aside, like, let's look at the United States. I'm just going to give you a couple more you know, tidbits, and Please. then let's let's talk about corporations because, all right, USDA report, January 2021 comes out. It says that large-scale farms in the United States, which have a gross income of $1 million or more, they make up less than 3% of all U.S. farms, but produce 43% of the value of all these agricultural products that are sold every year. Meanwhile, 88% of farms, so the vast majority of farms are small-owned family-owned farms, but they only own 46% of the farmland, which is actually similar to only <laughs> what's owned by the large-scale farms. Yet they sell 19% of the value of all agricultural products sold, which is far less than what the big farms produce. And so, you know, it's great that the United Nations puts out these reports saying, we've got to recognize, we've got to cherish, we've got to really value these small farms that are out there. But the trend is that year after year after year, decade after decade, farms continue to consolidate in the United States and around the world. And a recent paper by Mexico and Kenya projected that the number of farms is going to decrease throughout the world in 10 years, which that means there's going to be further consolidation. And the UN's International Fund for Agricultural Development estimates that you know, the, the reason why this is a big deal is there are about 500 million smallholder farms in the developing world. That's the estimate, supporting the livelihoods of almost 2 billion people. So what's the strategy for when all of these farms get snapped up by a big company and then suddenly, you know, all of this emphasis on we're back in the little guy, we're supporting the smallholders, we're supporting the small farms. Where does that all go when you're well, trying to solve something like hunger where the big farms produce most of the food? Yeah, well, maybe that's misplaced. I mean, let's look at like the economic factors there. Why is it so incentivizing for like I understand consolidating and like it from if you're a company trying to scale, makes a lot of sense. But what's incentivizing them to send send the food out of the country? Because they can get a higher return by selling this product elsewhere. So my perspective is how can you incentivize those companies to look inward. And it's really by providing the people with the economic means to create a competitive marketplace where those companies then want to sell that food to them. I mean, again, you know, let's look at the United States. I mean, it's obviously we're in a very fortunate position, but we have so much, so much, uh, an abundance of food. You know, you've got McDonald's, you've got all these fast food chains, you go to supermarkets, they're overflowing with food. Nick's spilling berries all over the place. But and, and what drives that? It's because of the buying power of the average American citizen 
to go in and afford that food. And even, you know, those who in the United States we would consider within poverty, which is certainly more than a lot of these impoverished countries around the world, a whole family would make in probably five to 10 years, if not more, they, you know, despite it being challenging within the United States, they can still afford food. And there are social and, you know, and, and government programs that help help them as well. But it's that buying power. It's it's knowing that the American citizen can go out and buy food. And in those countries, if, if consolidation is a theme, and I don't see that changing, the narrative should really be how can we prop up these countries, the populace of these countries, to give them economic security so that they can go out and they can, can create a competitive marketplace. Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's always going to be these subsidies domestically for different agricultural products, goods, services, etc. And so you raise a good point. It's while these UN, while this big resolution that we voted no on, it says we have to care about the little guy. We've got to care about all these smallholders throughout the world, hundreds of millions of them. Well, what happens when they start to go away more and more and you end up with these big companies that are more efficient, produce more food and contribute more to <laughs> GDP in your country? Like, I feel like it's almost inevitable that, co- that governments wouldn't end up supporting those big companies more than the little guy. Yeah. And, and that and- could be an issue. Well, I mean, I'll take a flip side. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. If you're a company and you're able to produce more food than, say, you know, the 20 little farmers that you absorbed, what, like, I understand for them, the little farmers, maybe not a great situation, but a higher level, if there's more food and more of an abundance of food, that in principle should be able, should it, in, in an ideal world, should flow back into that ecosystem then there's nothing bad there. I mean, if we look at the United States, everything, I mean, we talk about, and they're, granted, there are thousands and thousands of small businesses here, but where do the average people shop? They shop at the big brands, the names that are traded on the stock market. I mean, that trend isn't going away anytime soon. So for these developing countries or smaller countries where it is really driven on small business, it's inevitable in a sense that eventually just due to progress, there's going to be less less of those smaller businesses, less of those family-owned farms and it's going to be the bigger names coming in there so again to my point it's how do you ensure that those goods stay within the community or how do you incentivize those companies to focus their efforts efforts domestically rather than look abroad and it really comes down again to economics it's how do you prop up those people and it, it touches on education you know societal changes really encourage you know showing people that you need to go out and get a higher degree to learn these hot skills et cetera et cetera I mean, isn't that what it is? It's all in pursuit of of progress. I mean, you know, it's easy to talk from our our high, our high horse in the United States. I mean, a lot of the problems that we're solving, you know, countries within Africa would never even think about solving right now because they don't even make any sense. You know, a, you know, fundamental human healthcare, like that's a great example. What, you know, in Africa, I mean, look at food; they're starving. They're not going to think about healthcare. I'm not even going to make it to the hospital. I've got to get some food first. So how do we solve that before we can start tackling these other issues? And that's where I think economics plays a role in propping up that that populace. Maybe I'm rambling a bit, but again, it just comes back to that the fact that this issue touches on so many dimensions. And I think it really comes down to just not intervention, but, you know, providing a means for these companies, these countries to prop up their populace. Yeah, that's fair. I think We've gone a lot of different ways with this episode, and I think we've sort of agreed that, yes, there, well, I don't know, do you disagree with this? Do you think there should be a right to food? 
No, I wholeheartedly agree. Well, you started off by saying, no, I was nervous for a second. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think there should be two. But again, the terms and conditions of that, of that commitment, um, I just don't think they're very favorable the way they're written into the agreement. I think it takes a ton of stuff for granted. And it's a huge wish list that, frankly, most of the countries who, the vast majority of countries who sign on are never going to have to worry about it. In, in the coming decades, because they're never going to be in the position where they're actually obligated to ramp up, you know, and step up their game when it comes to helping out their uh, neighbors in the international community. So um, I think yeah. the United States, you know, look, uh, we vote no. Good. Glad we voted no. Let's continue to vote no. <laughs> I refuse to let little. It's not Gutierrez. Any Is it Gutierrez right now? Who's the secretary general? I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, Gutierrez uh, is not allowed right now. Okay, <laughs> he can't get his way. And Cuba, the delegate from Cuba, Cuba hasn't even ratified the underlying agreement. Okay, that we we also haven't ratified in '67. But I don't know how you <laughs> sign on to this right, and you haven't even ratified the thing before it. And then it's like, oh my God, the United States, such so terrible, so bad. It's like, really? Well, why don't you guys do the thing that you're <laughs> criticizing us for? Hypocrites left and right. You know, I talked about that watchdog earlier in the episode. You know, Nick. I don't know what your career admirations are. I mean, I do, but that's the role that you need. I mean, you see through the bullshit. You're calling people out left and right. You're going down this delegation at the UN. You're slapping the people on the, sitting at the little podiums. I know you didn't sign that 67. You didn't ratify that. What basis do you have to vote yes here? I saw your arguments in Article 22 of this convention. How dare you? <laughs> Um, with the whole Greta blah, blah, blah thing. But no, look, I, I think it's good that the world is still talking about it. I think the sort of outrage um, is misplaced online because, again, the United States does a lot on food and food security. Um, however, of course, this, this is not a great look when you could point to it and say, oh, wow, this country doesn't believe in the right to food. Meanwhile, everyone else does, basically. So uh, on that note, I guess not the, not the best look. We can agree. But you know, it's good to know that after doing a little research, we we are doing we are doing a little. But uh, Steve, uh, feel free to cut me off here. But the corporations, dude, they're, they're a big issue. All right, you got monocropping, you've got topsoil degradation, you've got climate concerns, you've got these CAFOs with cattle feed operations inhumanely treating the animals. You've got all this runoff. You've got cow manure going into the aquifers, ruining our drinking water. Well, what's you your solution? What is your solution? More legislation? What are you going to be the ones that go into the office of every CEO in the, in the country and slap them around a bit and say, stop doing that? Maybe I will. Maybe that's what needs to happen. Maybe they need to get slapped around a little bit and then they'll figure it out. Now, I think that's what we need. You know, a little, a little hand-to-hand every now and then. Never hurt anybody. Oh, you want to acquire this small family farm? All right, you have to let them slap you in the face at least twice before you <laughs> seize their land. That should be the basis on how every contractual agreement is signed today. It's just whoever's the smaller man gets, gets to slap the other party as much as they want. That's, Forget the DocuSign IPO. I think we need a virtual slaps in whatever metaverse <laughs> is coming. Oh, my God. It's inevitable. So, of course, because otherwise it would violate human rights. So we couldn't have that. Of course. I mean, can you imagine the line going into Mark Zuckerberg's desk? I mean, a billion people going in there just virtually slapping <laughs> would, the shit out of this guy. That would be a lot of slaps. Oh I don't know God. if you could make it back from that. My goodness. Even the finest robots that we've produced, I don't know if they can handle a million. I know Zuckerberg <laughs> is running on advanced technology here with his robotic processor, but you know, I, I think that might be proved to be too much. No, dude. He's no Terminator. He's going to be bruised and bloodied. That is for sure. 
Well, as always, Steve, wonderful speaking with you. We'll get to China next time. We'll talk about democracy again, but thanks for coming with me on this uh, wormhole of a journey. Of course, it was good. We'll see what uh, derails us next week.